James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15 this morning um, as we continue on in our series, Jimmy. And I will say this at at the outset of this message, this is going to be um, one of those messages where we're going to dig into a subject matter that many of us either don't want to talk about or uh, the subject matter that we're going to be talking about this morning is, is slanted in our minds. We've got a, we've got a skewed perception of, of the subject matter that we're going to deal with this morning. So James chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who loved him. That's a continuation of what we've been dealing with uh, for the past four weeks, which is trials and wisdom in trials and how God uses trials to, to work in our lives. And then James quickly changes the subject matter. And he says this in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's being very clear right here because the the recipients of this letter were underneath the assumption and the belief that where it was connected to trials, if God uses trials to perfect our faith, we talked about this a few weeks ago, then he also must use temptation towards sin to do the same thing. James is saying, eh, got that wrong, now let's learn what temptation and sin really is. He says this, God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, which own desire. Come over, shout own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Today as we continue on in our series, Jimmy, I want to speak to you from the subject, the struggle is real. The struggle is real as we deal with the issue of temptation and sin in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that it's alive, that it's active, that it's powerful, that it has the ability to transform us. And so Father, right now I pray that we would take these next few moments and we would allow our hearts to be open to what it is that you want to speak to us this morning. We love you, we worship you. We thank you for this day in your house a place that we can come and experience your grace and your presence, find refuge from the heat of life, that we can continue to go through our process. And I pray this morning that as we read through this, as we discuss this subject matter, I pray that every single one of us wouldn't feel shame or guilt or frustration, but rather we would once again get a glimpse of your glorious grace for our lives. We love you and we worship you. Speak to us now, we're listening in Jesus' mighty name. Come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. I, I have an issue. In my life, um, probably a, a major temptation in my life, if I can be transparent and honest with you, um, in the form of Sour Patch Kids. <sighs> anybody, anybody else know this weakness? A few, a few of us in here. Brian, thank you. That's why I love you, man. Uh, but not only Sour Patch Kids. I can actually walk down the aisle of a grocery store and see a small bag of Sour Patch Kids with the small Sour Patch Kids. Um, but the, the inventors, um, the glorious creators of Sour Patch Kids, they went and did me a solid and invented a five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids that are twice the size as the normal Sour Patch Kids. This is where my life gets into trouble, okay? Overall, I would say our family is a healthy family. We try to watch what we eat by, for the most part, and, and we do a pretty good job of it. But if you put a bag, of, a five-pound bag, albeit, um, of these glorious, gigantic-sized Sour Patch Kids, this brother's going to stumble. 
Big time. So this is the way our night went last night. And, and I just got to gotta get it out there. I got to air it out there. We had a, we had a great, uh, well, actually, Saturday wasn't healthy at all. So um, just roll with it. It started with Costco pizza. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? Oh, man. Good stuff. So we're like, but I'd been working all day. I'd been painting two days in a row. So I, I figured I burnt the calories that deserved it. Um, so, so it started out with Costco pizza. And I was like, well, we're going to relax and put the kids to bed. And and uh, we're going to relax in front of Netflix for a while before getting ready for, uh, for today. And, uh, and then the ice cream came out. And because uh, pizza and ice cream is like just a glorious combination. And so um, I, I ate some ice cream. And, and it was earlier in the evening. So by the time that I got to like uh, later in the evening, I was getting itchy for some sort of snack. And so I went upstairs and there's all kinds of fruit and there's, there's watermelon sitting on our, I mean, I've got corn. I could have boiled corn for all that, that like I cared. But no, I reached in the pantry and the Sour Patch Kids started to speak to me. Um, the bag opened up and said, take me, eat me. <laughs> and in the moment, the struggle got very real. I had, I had started to think about all the things that I'd eaten in that day and all the stuff that I'd put in my body. And, and, and before, before me, I had a choice. Was I going to take the Sour Patch Kids or was I going to leave them there and take a healthier alternative? Church, I failed last night. Okay? I failed. Before you, I, I declare my failure. And I brought my bag of Sour Patch Kids downstairs, and I laid on the couch, and I popped it open, and I started eating Sour Catch, Patch Kids. Lay's was wrong. Like, once you pop, and you can't stop on Lay's, no, I don't buy that. But once you pop Sour Patch Kids, game over. Okay? And I know for, for some of you, Sour Patch Kids is not your weakness. It's brownies, or Snickers bars, right? Or coffee. Okay? I know how much coffee we go through around here at church. But it was in that moment that I had this internal struggle with the Sour Patch Kids that I was desiring so much. So I brought them downstairs and I gave in and I started eating them. And then, and then I passed my sins on to my wife. And so she started eating them, right? And, and so then it was just one big Sour Patch Kid party downstairs. And, and as we got down to it, I went, wow, this bag is disappearing really quickly. Five pound bag, okay? Well, this is what James is presenting to us. The issue with sin in our lives. The issue with Temptation. Now, sin and temptation is a subject matter that for the most part the church is kind of laying off of. We have a tendency not to talk about it anymore. We have a tendency to sit in moments like this where it's like no one wants to come to church and hear about sin. No one wants to come to church and hear about temptation because why? We automatically assume that with the message, with the, with the information that we're going to be talking about this morning, guilt and shame is automatically attached to it. And like I said at the beginning, that is not our intention this morning. But what we need to understand is if we don't deal with the issue of sin and temptation, we're going to go through life staring at things and dealing with things that we could otherwise conquer in the name of Jesus. We're all tempted with stuff. We all have temptation. We all have things that entice us. And this is what James is, is dealing with. In this cluster of verses, James shifted to a mode of, of warning, strong warning. This is called paranesis, an ancient form of exhortation designed to draw one's audience to both belief and denial. It's a really cool way of doing it. He wants them to believe that overcoming sin and temptation is possible by the denial of it. Come on, somebody. And so this is how James is going to help us grow. James contributes, in the New Testament especially, one of the most penetrating and insightful discussions on the nature of sin and temptation contained with, within the whole Bible. Somebody put it like this. The context of this word tempt, periazo, connotes a provocation to sin. 
This is in fact the way that it stands outside of trials and, and potentially used by God to develop us and puts it in a totally different category. James wanted us to understand that, that God himself doesn't use sin and temptation to make us better. The enemy of our lives does that, but as well another piece of the puzzle, because we all want to blame it on the devil, don't we? The devil made me do it. That's easy. That's placing the blame. But James is saying right here, no, no, it wasn't the devil that made you do it. It was you that made you do it. So I could have went down last night and been like, man, I'm so sorry I ate this whole bag. The devil made me do it. No! That would make me do anything. Desire. Sour Patch Kids enticing me made me do it. The desire in me. And this is what James is, is trying to deal with quote I read recently says, says this, light and erroneous views of the atonement come from light and erroneous views of sin. If sin is regarded as merely an offense against man, a weakness of human nature, a mere disease rather than as rebellion, transgression, and enmity against God, and therefore something condemning and punishable, we shall not, of course, see any necessity for the atonement. Paul said it like this to make it simpler. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So in other words, if we don't deal with the subject matter of sin and temptation, then we're actually dumbing down the need for atonement in Christ. The substitutionary death that is found by way of the cross. Now come on, we know this, that we have conquered, we get to the end of the book, we know that we have won this game, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we won! That's an awesome place to, to understand and to be in. But we still have to, come on, how many of you know that we deal with temptation on a daily basis? Right? And I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm smart enough to know that every single one of us deal with it. If you're sitting in here this morning, you're saying, man, I don't, I don't deal with temptation, I don't sin, you're lying, and therefore you're with us. <laughs> it says that somewhere in the good book. <laughs> See, in other words, we have to be very careful how we treat the subject and reality of sin, especially in light of its power and purpose. Its power and purpose is to bring separation, a divide between God and, and man. So if we're going to walk through the book of James, we have to deal with this, this subject matter. Many definitions of sin have been proposed throughout history, and they divide into fairly well-defined categories. The first one is this. Some say that sin is just simply an illusion. It's simply an illusion. In other words, it doesn't really exist. To be sure, there, there are lacks in man, but given time and the ongoing process of evolution, these will disappear. A medical doctor not lo long ago said this, there is no place for the concept of sin in psychotherapy. And very long ago, more than one thinker said that man is conscious of sin only because of his lack of knowledge. If he knew more, he could dissipate that illusion of sin. In other words, our brokenness, temptation, our sinful nature is simply just a product of lack of knowledge. But as we grow in knowledge, then somehow this idea of sin goes away. But as we discussed last week, how many of you know that knowledge puffs up and causes us to believe something that's not true? So these are some of the definitions that are created to help us with the subject matter that we really don't like dealing with. The second thought and concept that rolls around in the world that we live in is sin is an internal principle of evil outside of God and independent of him. This is called dualism, which has been associated with one form or another of uh, Zoroaster, Yin and Yang, Chinese thought, early Gnosticism. Right? It's, just this, it's this idea that sin lays out here outside of 
of God. It's the yin and yang. It's the light and the dark. And so it creates kind of this balance for us in the force, if you will, right? That we just kind of sit here and we go, well, we can choose sin life or we can choose non-sin life, but it stands outside of any type of relationship with God because God is simply just good, loves us, and wants to be our friend. The third thought and idea of sin is sin is selfishness. This is a common definition of sin and, and is scriptural, though inadequate at best. For it is not inclusive enough. For instance, by this definition, a man who steals food from the rich to feed the poor may not be acting selfishly, but he nevertheless is sinning, however much sin is self, selfishness. I called the Peter, um, uh, um, the Robin Hood syndrome. It's the idea that we can justify acts that God has said no to in order for greater good. Okay? But at the root, at the end of the day, sin is still selfishness. We can see that in the context of Scripture. And then there's the biblical definition of sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, is that it's lawlessness. This simple definition actually needs further explanation. This concept of sin is first and foremost a religious concept. Okay? Now, I'm giving you a lot of information this morning. I'm trying to build a case so that we can get to the practical matters of the issue. Because all sin is ultimately against God. God's laws, God's creation, God's covenant, and God's purposes for our life, and ultimately his will. It is the basic corrupting agent in the entire universe. universe. Listen to what James will go on to say in chapter 4 of his letter. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, is what James says. So what he's starting to do is he's starting to kind of create this integral system of understanding for us so that we can deal with sin appropriately. The concept of sin is first and foremost a religious concept because all sin is ultimately against God, God's laws, his creation, God's covenant. There are numerous Hebrew and Greek words used to designate sin in biblical writings. Perhaps the most basic is a Hebrew word meaning revolt or transgression and indicating a deliberate act of defiance against God. This idea lies at the heart of the Genesis account, the beginning of sin. How many of you have kids in here, show of hands? All the, all the kids? Okay. Parents in here? You're not kids, but your parents. Did you ever have that moment like we did as parents when out of nowhere you've raised your kids well, everything's going good, they're like two or three, and all of a sudden they say no for the first time? You know what I'm talking about? Or they decide that they're going to do what they want to do, and you have no idea where this came from. You know that moment where you realize that the devil is real? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? We literally had this as our kids were getting older, and we went, where did that come from? It's the basic corrupting agent, right? Because it, all, it creeps up in all of us. And, and while we can go, oh, that's cute, that's nice, they're just two or three, it's this interesting moment where you see the will of something else starting to take place in our lives. And this is what James is trying to deal with, this, this will that's inside of us that has a tendency to distract us and take us places that we shouldn't want to go or don't want to go. So an inclusive definition, if you're needing one this morning, of sin would be anything that does not conform to the glory of God. And indeed, that is the standard against which sin is measured. So now that we have a basic understanding of sin, I want to take a look at how sin 
sin happens. So if you got your Bible, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look, we're going to zoom through um, a bunch of verses here. It's the story of David. We read this a little while ago, but I think it bears repeating um, because it highlights the, what I call the, the, the stages of, of sin, how sin happens. I want to help us all out this morning because the bottom line is this, is that while we're all still in process, some of that is inclusive of sin. We all have temptation. We all have things that we're working through. Come on, somebody. And uh, so I think it's appropriate that we understand the stages of sin so that maybe we can kind of get a glimpse on how to deal with it. And then we're going to talk about how to deal with it. Sound good with you this morning? All right, four stages of sin. The first one is this, when you are someplace that you shouldn't be. When you're someplace that you shouldn't be, 2 Samuel 11.1, 1. in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. All the kings, David was a king at this point, all the kings went out to war, but David remained in in Jerusalem. The first stage of sin is when you are someplace that you shouldn't be. And this can be physically, spiritually, emotionally. When we are someplace that we should not be in any sense or or any of these areas, we will find ourselves in the position for sin to take place. Come on. Have you ever been up at midnight and that infomercial comes on for the ab machine? You know what I'm talking about? Come on, I'm not the only one that's been tempted to dial the number. It's something about midnight in the ab machine that makes you go, could this really work? Right? And the minute Chuck Norris comes on the TV, you're like, it absolutely works. (laughs) Take my money. (laughs) And this is the problem, is that when we are someplace that we shouldn't be. Now, am I advocating that you shouldn't stay up late and watch movies? No, not necessarily. But if staying up late and watching TV or being by yourself at the end of the day will lead you, will start the train of temptation in your life, I absolutely would say, knock it off. Absolutely. But we don't like that. Well, we're free. We, we shouldn't have legalism. It's not legalism. It's wisdom. <laughs> That's the difference. It's funny how we love wisdom when we love wisdom, but then we quickly call wisdom legalism if wisdom will actually keep us from doing the very thing that legalism won't stop us from doing. Did you catch that? (laughs) So when you're someplace that you shouldn't be, come on somebody, (laughs) it's the first stage of, of sin. It's amazing how we'll find ourselves in sin when you're dealing with emotional stresses. Depression, the breakup of a relationship, work issues, school issues, boredom. They are all emotional things. And when we're dealing with these things, we have a tendency, it's amazing to me that when we deal with these things, we put ourselves in the same exact position that we normally would when things are level in our life. And that's when temptation starts to kick in. Is when my mind, my heart, my body, everything in me is not setting up the right safeguards to keep me from going in a direction that I shouldn't be going. And so the first stage of sin in our lives is when we are someplace that we, that we shouldn't be. So emotionally, when we're facing depression, and break of a relationship, work issues, school issues, boredom, emotionally when we're in a place we shouldn't be. Spiritually, when we've been neglecting our quiet times with God, when we are not taking the time to connect during worship, our spiritual shields are not up, making us more susceptible to, to sin. Come on, somebody. The Bible actually tells us to not forsake the gathering of the saints. So some of you may be asking this morning, 
sit, even sitting here, why should I be in church? We do the same thing every week. We preach, like this dude gets up there and he shouts and yells for a little while and the team gets up there and they play and dance around for a little while and I say hi to the people around me for a little while and I, I drink copious amounts of caffeine in there and then I leave and I go about my day. Why church? It's amazing that you can correlate people's engagement with the community to what they are being tempted with outside of the community. I see it all the time. Why do we not forsake the gathering of the saints? Because it's in the context of community. Iron sharpens iron, right? And so when the light of relationship is shined upon our lives, when you have people in your life that care about you and you're engaged and you're involved in certain things, it's a lot harder to allow your temptation to take rule in your life. Come on, somebody. How many of you know that in my life, I've got a lot of people in my, it would be pretty hard for me right now to jack up my life. I'm just being honest. It would be really hard. Why? Because I don't have enough space to be by myself with my temptation. This is why it's so important. So when you're not someplace that you should be. See, my wife should get worried when Jason's Bible reading goes down and he's not worshiping anymore and he's not integrating with other believers. She should start to worry when my spiritual compliance, for lack of better terms, is starting to dissipate. Why? Because then something inside of me is being opened up to potentially be susceptible to greater degrees of temptation. So when I'm not there emotionally, when I'm not there spiritually, when I'm not there physically, where's your location? Where are you at? Are you at a party that you knew there was going to be certain things at? Are you in a dating relationship that you shouldn't be in? Are you someplace where you're going to find yourself facing temptation? Right? Is that computer on too late at night? We did a message last summer called Porn Again Christian. It's a massive issue that we all struggle, statistically speaking. Statistically speaking, I already know that we're dealing with it in this room right now. So where are you putting yourself? Where are you finding yourself? I have an app on my phone. It's called IMDB. Anybody heard of IMDB? Whenever somebody's like, hey, do you want to go see a movie? Erica's like, do you want to watch this movie? And she, you can ask her, verify all that I'm saying this morning with my wife. I will, I will quickly, first thing I do, IMDB. And if there's certain things that I see, they tell you everything. If there's certain things that are in that movie, I will not watch that movie as much as I want to watch that movie. Why? Because I don't want my soul to be driven towards something that at the end of the day, as a male especially, I could be very well tempted with and am tempted with. Can we be vulnerable this morning? Can we talk about it? I'm not boy just because I stand up here and so I gotta make sure that I'm dogmatic and people might say, well that's really religious, you don't go see movies. Yeah, but my family, my church, my destiny is not going to be in a place where I don't want it to be because it's more important than the two and a half hour movie that doesn't do anything for me. Come on somebody. Got lockdowns on my computers and things like that, why? Because, well, being a father to my son, I want to be able to teach him and show him certain things. And it's just not worth it. Three minutes of bliss is not worth a lifetime of trouble. So the first stage of sin is when you're someplace that you shouldn't be. The second one is this, is when your curiosity turns to desire. They said that the curiosity killed the cat. So you know. When your curiosity turns to desire. 2 Samuel 11, 2-3. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, at this moment, David should have booked it, hightailed it, boom, gone. He should have realized, wow, I'm supposed to be out in the battlefield right now. But watch what happens. The woman was very beautiful. 
They need to make sure that they tell us that. Why? Because we need to understand that David was now enticed. He was drawn towards her. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You've all heard the saying, curiosity killed the cat. I don't think that's necessarily true. I do think that curiosity is what brought the cat to the edge. My brother, if you didn't know this, he's, our worship pastor is my brother by four years. And uh, him and I have been through a lot with each other. I, I love my brother. But I'll never forget this one time. My grandma lived in a trailer park in um, Fresno, California. We used to go visit her during the summer times. My mom would bring us down there, and, and I can still, like, remember the smell of the trailer. And I can still remember, it was a mobile home. And I can still remember the smell and the sights. We used to watch Ninja Turtles, and we had Ninja Turtle pajamas, and we'd fight each other. Like, you know what I'm talking about? It was awesome. We'd hit each other, and, and we'd run around, and, and she used to watch Murder, She Wrote, and MacGyver, and, and uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It was that day, and, and so I, I still vividly remember those things, and I'll never forget I'll never forget Justin was, he had this, this desire, this temptation, if you will, to, to stick his finger in light sockets. And this is why his hair's gone this day. Um, I love you. So, so, so one afternoon, he was, uh, he was being tempted, and he would, he would walk over, and he would, he would try to, and we'd, no, stop, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And so we'd pull him away and everything like that. Well, he got back into my grandma's bedroom in the back of the house, and, and all of a sudden, the lights went down and back up, and we knew something bad had happened, right? And so we ran back, and Justin's sitting on the floor. He hadn't even started crying yet. He hadn't even started crying yet. And he was like, wide eyed and looked at us, and there was black all up his hand right? Because he'd stuck his finger in the light socket. And then, of course, he's not even crying. Like, he's being tough. And then you go, <gasps> right? And then he's like, and just starts freaking out. We told him over and over and over and over again, don't do that. But when your curiosity turns to desire, you've got this train starting to move in your life, right? Curiosity is what brought him to examining the socket. The Bible says that David sent someone to find out about her. He wanted to know more info. He was willing to walk up as close to the fire as possible. And this is the second, second stage to sin is when our curiosity turns to desire. Instead of stopping thinking things through, saying to yourself, hey, I shouldn't be here and I should go back, David decides to find out more about what he's enticed by. And he walks right up to the edge of the cliff. In Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve saw the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye, so they decided to take a closer look. When curiosity turns to desire and want, it means that you're about to find yourself in, in sin. Temptation inherently isn't wrong. It's what you do with this temptation. Because we are going to be tempted. Let no one say it's God when he's tempted. But the problem is, is when we get into this system, it's really hard to hold ourselves back. It was really hard for me to put down that Sour Patch Kid bag last night. I, I, I kind of started to win with it, and I wanted to find out more about it. And so I'm staring at the pantry, and I'm looking at all these other things, but then the yellow bag with the fruity children on the front got my attention. And I looked at it, and I said, oh, want some Sour Patch Kids. So I picked it up, and I held it in my hand. I wanted to know more about the Sour Patch Kids, and popped it open, and... 
wow. Red, blue, yellow, green, orange, colors of the rainbow, smiling at me, say, just take one. <laughs> when your curiosity turns to desire, David found himself in that, in that place. The third, the third stage of sin is this, is when desire turns to action. Come on, I'm getting something out of this this morning. When desire turns to action, 2 Samuel 11:4, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. All right? David finds out that she's married, yet that does not stop him. His desire was so great, he was overwhelmed by it. He had, in this situation long enough, he had been in it long enough to get lost in it. The only place to go from here was to turn that desire into action. Come on, you ever been in that place where desire is so great, you just, you, you, you have to give in at this point. There's so much going on in it that you just have to, have to give in at this point. It's amazing, it's at this point that we even start doing things and giving in to things that we don't necessarily like. Just the desire is so great for it. I'll illustrate it this way. Movie theater popcorn. It's a food, it's a food morning, okay? I'm actually not a fan of, of movie theater popcorn. It, it just messes, like I don't like the salt and all the stuff and it messes my stomach and then it hangs with me all day long. I don't like it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just weird and the butter, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? You just found my Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> But there's this weird thing that happens is you get bored in the movie at a certain point where you just need to have it like in your mouth. And so I grab movie theater popcorn and I put it in my mouth because I'm just like, I just need something to chew on. And there's, there's some sort of substance that they put in the butter, I'm, I'm sure of it, that all of a sudden my mouth is like, party! And it's like popcorn, 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 popcorn. And then I have the same ill feeling after the movie. That's the power of desire at a very simple level. The thing is, is that there's other things in our life that are tempting us and bringing out desire in us that speak much more to the issues that we're dealing with intern internally, so desire becomes even greater. Wait a second, I'm dying, I'm dying for affirmation. I'm needing somebody to just tell me that they love me. I mean, I just need to feel good because my life has just been a series of unfortunate events, one thing after the other after the other. And so this substance, this thing, I needed to kill and to drown out everything that I remember from my past. And all of a sudden, temptation, come on somebody, starts moving. This is the quickest stage to sin when desire turns to action. How many of you ever asked this question to yourself before? What was I thinking? This stage of sin has the least amount of brain activity. You weren't thinking. Your the desire in you was doing the thinking. Think about that. Some of us need to write that down this morning. Is that at a certain point in our lives, our desire starts doing the thinking for us. Not our rationale. Not our ability to look at things. It's our desire that's now doing the thinking, so David's situation just gets worse. Bathsheba gets pregnant, so David goes out on a freak-out session to try to cover up what he's done, and in that cover-up session, David manages to lie and commit murder. These are the stages of sin in our lives. So with that being said, now that we know the stages of sin, how we find ourselves in this place, let, let's talk about how we can overcome it. Because last time I checked in my Bible, it says that we are more than overcomers. That through the power of Christ, we have the ability to overcome. We have the ability to conquer. We have the ability to reign some things 
in. Wait, are you suggesting that we're perfect? No, I'm not suggesting that we're perfect. But I am suggesting that there's a lot of things that overcome us that don't have to overcome us in life. So the first one is I want to understand the uh, four things, four ways of overcoming sin. We're going to move through these super quick. First one is this. Every shot, number one. You got to know where you're at. You actually have to know where you're at emotionally, spiritually, physically. I have to know where I'm at at all times and where I'm going. You got to know where you're at. That means you got to take personal inventory of your life. When you find yourselves in temptation moments, you got to ask yourself, where am I at emotionally right now? Where am I at spiritually right now? Where am I at physically right now? Where am I at? Because this temptation, this thing in the world around me has the ability to entice my desires. It has the ability to to egg me on. And so if I'm emotionally and spiritually and physically in check, it means that I can manage that thing. It means that I can reject that thing. It means that I can resist the devil. It means that I can resist a lot of things. Uh, If if you think about the story of Joseph, I love it because um, Potiphar's wife, sorry, Potiphar's wife is like, she's coming on to him. She's strong. She's saying, come on, boy. Let's do this. See, he's not here. It's not going to happen. And what does it say Joseph does? He runs. He hightails it out of there. That's an important thing to note. Joseph was in the position he understand where he was at so he could run with everything in him. You got to know where you're at. The second one is this. You got to know your temptations and limitations. When you know what tempts you, it's a whole lot easier for you to avoid sin. The problem is that most of us never get militant about what tempts us. We allow it to be around us. We make excuses for it and even justify our ability to be okay with it because, you know, we don't want to be legalistic. Am I talking to anybody in here this morning? If you get around me, I'll be pretty militant about things. Jason, do you want to go watch this movie with us? IMDb. Nope. Oh, come on, man. You're no fun. I don't care about fun. I don't care about fun. I've got things that outweigh fun, that are more important to me fun. But that's so legalistic. Jesus wouldn't want you to live that way. What are you talking about? (laughs) He died on the cross so I could overcome and live this way. But you're missing out on cultural nuances and values. Your ability to relate to the world around you I don't need to relate to the world around me. I need to point him to Jesus, the ultimate relator. Come on. We've got to know these things. We've got to know our temptations and limitations. I'm a guy. I see things with my eyes, like most people do, but guys see other things. So we have very real conversations, my wife and I. Why? so I know where I'm at. I let her know when I'm struggling. I let her know when I'm feeling down. I let her know when I'm feeling weak. I let her know when I'm feeling exhausted. I let her know, why? So that she can keep me accountable to the very things that will lead me into temptation. Does that mean I don't mess up? No, that doesn't mean that I don't mess up. That doesn't mean that I don't get angry. It doesn't mean that I don't do these things. But that's where the grace of God comes in. But how many of us know that there's certain things in our life that don't have to overcome us? We have the ability to overcome them. Number three, 
Don't let your feelings make a decision for you. See, the Bible says to set your mind on things above, not to meditate on, on things that are, that are below. And I believe that what you do when you put yourself in a, in, in a certain position is very important. You can't allow your feelings to rule you. Have you ever been there before? You ever been in that moment where you're in a heated argument and you let your feelings rule the moment and you say what it is that you want to say? And then in that moment you watch the words literally come out of your mouth and you're like, please come back. <laughs> you ever been there before? Because you let your feelings rule you? Both her and I are very passionate people, so we have the ability to do this. I have the ability to let my feelings rule, take precedent over knowledge and, and wisdom. So I can say things quickly, I can do things quickly, I can, I can give a look. Come on. Don't let your feelings make a decision for you. This is how we overcome. You've got to know where you're at. You've got to know your temptations and limitations. And you've got to not let your, your feelings make a decision for you. We live in a world right now that everybody is about making their feelings have the decision in their life, right? Why'd you do that? I felt like it. Right? Why'd you do that? I felt like it. I just feel. How do you do that? I just walk through it with feelings. I'm just feeling my way through things right now. Let me tell you something. Have you ever walked in the dark before? Have you ever got up in the middle of the night when it's pitch black and you try to feel your way through stuff? You ever been there before? You ever notice that when you're feeling your way through things, you have a tendency to run your way through things? Shins and toes and heads and I've missed the toilet before. And like I just went to sit down. That's the safest way to do it at night. No joke. You just sit down so you don't fall over and I missed the whole seat. Just boom, right on my bottom. It was awesome. And luckily, my wife wasn't there because she would have had no sympathy. She would have just laughed at me. She'd just have been like, you're a goon. All right? That's what happens when we walk through life with our feelings. We're feeling our way through it. I almost ran into the pulpit. We're feeling our way through it. See, God didn't ask us to feel our way through it. He said to wisdom our way through it. That means my eyes need to be wide open and through his word and through worship and through prayer. I can actually negotiate life and the things coming at me because there's going to be moments when temptation's not from the inside, but it is the outside. It is when the devil's coming at you. And i got to be diligent. i got to be aware so I can fight it. Why? Because he's like a roaring lion. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to pick off. And so, man, i got to walk through life with some wisdom and with some knowledge and with some understanding knowing that things are going to come at me. But when my eye, I don't need to feel it out. There's nothing to feel out. So don't let your feelings make a decision for you. And the fourth and last one is this. Overcoming sin is we've got to find a place of grace. We've got to find a place for grace. Listen, we're all going to mess up. Some of you this morning are already dealing with guilt and shame that even may be like starting to, to come up in you. Don't let that happen because that's not the spirit of God in you. Guilt and shame is not the product of the Holy Spirit. Guilt and shame is the product of an enemy right now that wants to destroy you when we start dealing with this stuff. When we find the place of grace at the foot of the cross where we are all equals and we all stand before God, broken sinners. While we were still yet sinners, the Bible tells us that he died for us. He loves you. There is a place of grace for our lives. So i got to run there. i gotta, I got to get to the foot of the cross and i got to say, God, I need you. I humble myself before you. I'm a broken man. I am a messed up human being. The cool part is the cross covers. Not where you're at. 
What have you been struggling with? What has desire been leading you into? Please hear me. I want to be so clear on this this morning. Do not hear this message. Do not hear the words of James as a plea to be perfect. Do not hear that. Hear this message as a plea to be aware. So we can overcome. We can't be perfect. We won't be perfect. Why? Because feelings will take over at a certain point. Desire will take over at a certain point. We're humans. But how many of you know that a lot of what we face and deal with, we don't have to face and deal with if we have a certain understanding of what God has provided for us, we can overcome. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning?